Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, March 5th, 2021. So, it's been five days since the Golden Globes. And to the surprise of absolutely no one, Pixar's soul uh, took home this year's trophy for Best Animated Feature. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think Wolf Walkers is generally going to give it a run for its money, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it took home the prize. I mean, I think it's well deserved. Uh, oh no, yeah. no, no, no doubt. But again, if you look at the other nominees, we had DreamWorks Animation, Crude's A New Age, we had Pixar's Onward, which, by the way, has a great making a book, one you should definitely check out from Chronicle Books, written by uh, name escapes me. It's on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I'll never tell. Okay. And then we had Glenn Keane's Over the Moon, and as you just mentioned, Wolfwalkers. And those last two were both released by Netflix. By the way, speaking of, of uh, Soul at the Golden Globes, <laughs> did you see where Kemp Powers, the co-director of this movie, found out he was a nominee for a Golden Globe just five hours before the ceremony began? Yeah, I saw that story. Okay. It was very disappointing, <laughs> but not... not uh... Totally outside of the realm of possibility, given what the uh, HFPA is going through right now. Well, uh, it, it, what Drew is referring to is the Los Angeles Times last week ran a story, and yeah. out of the eighty-seven entertainment writers who make up the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, there isn't a single member of that organization who's black. Um, so. Yeah. Got to be complete coincidence that Kemp Powers, an award-winning playwright and screenwriter who also just happens to be African-American, is suddenly notified five hours before the ceremony. It's like, hey, good news, you're a nominee. Hey. Yeah, I think this might be the last Golden Globes we see uh, for a little while, considering that the viewership was down 64% oh. from last year, which how many TV shows oh. do you know, Jim, that drop 64% and come back the next year? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it could be back on TNT or whatever <laughs> next year. Remember those days. Oh, God, yes. Get out. Oh, speaking of news, uh, news portion of today's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online with storybookdestinations.com. Okay, back to Kemp Powers now. He couldn't be at the ceremony due to the extremely short notice, also COVID. So after Soul wins Best Animated Feature that night. Pete Doctor holds up an iPad, which now has a pre-recorded acceptance speech that Kemp recorded, I guess, late on Sunday afternoon. Again, getting back to your 60% viewership drop in. Yeah. Maybe we sit this one out next year, yeah. Well, what's so funny, too, is that Kemp Kemp also wrote Mm. um, One Night in Miami, which is another, like, big awards movie. You'd think they would have kept him in the loop about something mm. but you know i don't know oh quick bit of trivia here golden globes didn't even have a best animated feature category to 2007 uh pixar's car was the very first film to take home that award and since that time pixar animation studio has taken home nine golden globes for best animated feature and pete doctor movies have claimed three of those prizes up from 2009 inside out from 2015 and now soul from 2020 but given that 60% drop in ratings, does that concern you at all as Hollywood heads into this award season? I just think it's a very I think it's a very weird award season because I feel like nobody has seen the movies that everybody is talking about mm-hmm. and nobody knows how to watch them. Mm-hmm. Like if you polled 10 people how to watch Minari 
first of all, eight of them wouldn't know what it was, and the other two wouldn't know how to watch it. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a real disconnect this year. As somebody described it as like the award season that never really was because it just it's just totally amorphous and there's just no buzz about anything mm-hmm. and it's very weird, Jim. Especially because we're not even going to get the Oscar nominations until the end of this month. Yeah, that, that which is crazy. Evidently, we'll get the nominations. They'll be announced on March fifteenth. It always has struck me as a little cruel to the effect of they announce them at like 8.30 in the morning East Coast time, which means on the West Coast, you are people are, are having their hearts broken at 5.30 in the morning. I mean, yeah, sure, that there, there's some people who get nominations, but a lot of people don't. And it's just that that's a really early to have your hopes destroyed. But the Annies were just announced a day or so ago, the nominations. Yeah. And I was kind of intrigued coming off the Golden Globes to see what got nominated for Best Anime Feature. First three, Pixar's Soul, likewise Pixar's Onward, and uh, DreamWorks Animation's Crude's A New Age. Those were also nominated for Globes. But then uh, they take a hard left. We get The Willoughbys from Netflix, which is a fine film. I you know, enjoyed it. Likewise, Trolls World Tour uh, from DreamWorks Animation, but no Best Feature nomination for Wolfwalkers or Over the Moon. Well, Jim, I, I just want to correct you on this. Okay. Uh, which is that there this year, for some reason, there is a there's a Best Feature nomination and a Best Indie Feature nomination. Oh, you're kidding. So somehow me. Wolfwalkers, which was produced by Apple, is on the Best Indie Features but not on the best feature. So I'll, I'll just tell you the best indie features nominees. Jim Please, Arm. yeah. A Shaun the Sheep movie, okay. Farmageddon, okay. which is a Netflix movie, which again, yeah. I would not consider indie. Yeah. Uh, Calamity Jane, On Gaku, R Sound, no. Ride Your Wave, and Wolfwalkers. So no Over the Moon anywhere, but Wolfwalkers nominated in the independent category. So... Make of that what you will. Wow, that's a really interesting splitting of the hairs there. I mean, especially when you consider that yeah. Soul and Wolfwalkers are, are tied for the most standing nominations. They get 10 each, but that's an indie film? Wow, and Sean the Sheep? Yeah, I don't know what make it. Yeah, it's like Disney Plus versus Apple TV Plus. Mm. I'm not really sure Okay. <laughs> what the difference is there, but Jim... That's for other people to decide. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Well, 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 we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Okay. Anyway, speaking of animated features, yeah. just yesterday we, we got the news that Universal Pictures is pushing back Minions again. Yes. I guess internationally this is Minions 2, but domestically this is Minions The Rise of Gru. And this is the film I want to point out that the Super Bowl of 2020, I mean, February 2nd, we got... The first 30-second ad, and then a couple days later, we got the the full-length teaser trailer for a film that was supposed to open on July 3rd, 2020. But then COVID happens, studio has to shut down in March. By April, they have to admit that they just cannot finish the film under these conditions. And so that's when it gets pushed off to July of 2021. And now we have this announcement of July 2022. Now, Deadline, they talked about how Minions is the most profitable franchise for Universal, which is what evidently is really behind this date change, is that 
The studio wanted to make sure that the film's promotional partners were able to join the ride, so to speak, and support the brand in its 2022 release. And that to date, the four Gru, Minion, Despicable Me movies have grossed over $3.7 billion at the global box office. And I guess what this is really about is that Mattel, back in February of 2019, entered into a three-year deal with Universal to create merch tied to uh, Minions 2. But you were pointing out that last spring into the summer, Minions 2 stuff was, or even with the film having been pushed off by a year, was already showing up on store shelves. Yeah, there was a ton of toys, and I feel like there was, like, you know, branded Doritos bags and stuff like that. Yeah, I know that I saw... So I guess they're going to... Are they going to re-push all this stuff? Or, I I don't know, you tell me. What I've been hearing is that it's largely a supply chain issue that the Doritos, or for that matter, are getting new toys made or or put in new boxes, or old toys put in new boxes. The supply chain has been so disrupted by COVID that it was just one of these situations where we won't be in a in position to make maximum cash off of this film this year. You know, is there any way you can boot this to 2022? And that's basically what Universal has done, you know, with the hope that as many theaters as possible will be open and all of these, these Minion 2 toys that, you know, you saw will now be in brand new boxes and back on store shelves. I would love to know the inter- the environmental impact of this, Jim. How, how many? Well, you know, they, remember, they cleared that, that landfill out, you know, that was full of the old E.T. cartridge game. So, you know, there's space now. They'll just, That's true. They'll just put it in there. Yes. Okay. Wrapping up our, our talk about animated features, just wanted to note that Tom and Jerry, which was released to theaters as well as streamed exclusively in HBO Max this past weekend, exceeded box office production, had a $14.1 million opening, worldwide box office of $38 million. Forbes, in its coverage of, of Tom and Jerry, noted that this is the best Friday to Sunday debut for a new movie in North America since the $38 million opening of Pixar's Onward back in March of 2020. Again, that Dan Scanlon film has a great making of book, uh, or at least I remembered having a great making of book. And it's been so long since I've seen my own personal copy of the book. I, I sent it off to be autographed by the author months ago, and it seems to have gone missing in the mail. Is any of this sinking in? Oh, this is a book that I, I took <laughs> I took with me to Connecticut, and then I drove it back across the country. So yes, it is. It is autographed. All right. It, it has had a longer voyage than Forrest Gump, but yes. All right. Speaking of Tom and Jerry, quick congratulations to Tim Story, who directed this film. Uh, you can hear Drew and my interview with Tim about Tom and Jerry, I think, two fine-tunings back. But did you see where he just lined up his next gig? He's going to be directing the pilot of Queens, which is supposed to be this uh, new drama for ABC for the 2021-2022 season. Okay. Good for him. I mean, what a lovely guy. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. You know. And you know, you, when you when you direct those pilots, you get that executive producer credit, Jim, and that's when the big bucks start rolling in. If that show gets picked up. That's the tough part. You're actually getting picked up. Um, now, mind you, Tom and, Jer- Tom and Jerry's box office title expect to be blown out of the water this coming weekend with the release of Disney's Raya and the Last Dragon. And I, I have to apologize, folks. 
I have not seen Raya yet. And what I'm going to do is, as soon as this show's over, Nancy and I are going to sit down. We're going to watch it tonight. In fact, we might make a double feature of it because, you know, Sponge on the Run just debuted on Paramount+. Plus. And I know we talked on the last show about Camp Coral. You seem to like, sort of like what you saw. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you should check it out this weekend with, uh, with Sponge on the Run. Okay, but I want to say it was last August. We talked about the Patrick Starr show that uh, Nickelodeon was considering. And I guess as part of the, the, the official launch of the, you know, Sponge on the Run and uh, Camp Curl, they, they announced that the Patrick Starr show is going to debut this summer on Nickelodeon. 13 episodes, and it's a, a prequel to the SpongeBob series. And basically it involves Patrick doing a talk show out of his, his childhood bedroom. Among the people who will be working on the show, of course, Tom Kenny and Bill Farkenbarger. But uh, we've got Dana Snyder, uh, who is voicing Patrick's genius grandfather, Grand Pat Star. Dana is going to be popping up a lot this summer. He's doing Scratch, the grumpy old spook on The Ghost and Molly McGee, uh, which is supposed to begin airing on the Disney Channel later this summer. And I wonder, Drew, if this is the show that's going to drop into fill in the slot when the after the last episodes of season three of the DuckTales reboot finish airing this month. And Yeah, I've heard some really good stuff about the this new show, mm-hmm. so I'm very, very excited about it. Yeah. Same thing here. I, I, uh, speaking of DuckTales, though, did you get to see this week's episode, the, the Lost Cargo of Kit Cloud Kicker? Yes, I did. I did not expect DuckTales to veer into David Cronenberg-style <laughs> body horror. But, Jim, here we are, and I loved it. It was one of these things where it's like, to go there with the Wuzzles, that was Ryan Oki from the original series. In fact, at one point, Della is riding on the back of Butterbear. Is is that what the character was named? Yes. <sighs> the Wuzzles. I mean, the, the Wuzzles unto itself was pretty horrifying. But yes, to go the David Cronenberg route, that was the, that was pretty scary. Where's our fluffy dogs reference in DuckTales? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Well, we got we got one more episode coming up next week. That's true. Magic at a spell, and we get to meet her her brother Poe, who's going to be voiced by Martin Freeman, and then we have our our three episode grand finale. But to, to duck back to Lost Cargo Kit Cod Kicker, Adam Pat Pally did a great job as the adult Kit. I want to applaud the folks at DuckTales production team. The fact that they actually hired Elizabeth Coop, uh, who worked with Adam Pally on... Did you ever see Happy Endings, that, that ABC sitcom and only ran for... Oh, Jim, I, I'm a huge I'm a huge Happy Endings guy. And in fact, we're trying to get Adam Pally on Light the Fuse because there is an entire Ghost Protocol-themed episode. I don't know if you remember no. that, Jim. Oh, my God. He would go Ghost Protocol and just put his hood up like <laughs> it was the poster for Ghost Protocol. So uh, Charles did a movie with Adam called Night Owls that everybody should watch. Uh-huh. So yeah, we're gonna try to get him on. I oh! love Adam. I think he's great. No, he, so, yeah. I think he did an amazing job. <laughs> and uh, had you ever seen the bit he does in what is it, Iron Man Three, where he's get Tony Stark's greatest fan? It, he's just a fun guy. It was so nice to see him again. And more to the point, to have him working with Elizabeth, who was doing the voice of the the adult Molly Cunningham. All right. Uh, speaking of people who do voice work for for Disney. Did you see where Kevin Michael Richardson, uh, he, he voiced uh, Captain Gantu for both the Lilo and Stitch feature, likewise the, the series that followed. 
Did you see him where he just got hired to be the new voice of Dr. Hibbert on The Simpsons? Yeah, I want to say that I that this last week's episode had his voice in it, right? Did it really? Oh. I think go back and watch it again. Okay. Yeah. I think I think it's already changed, but I could be wrong about that. Kevin's done a couple of interviews on the heels of this news and he talked about how when Gracie Films approached him last year to do this to, to come on board and uh, be the new voice of, of Julius Hibbert, he turned it down, you know, because it just, it just, you know, he's a guy who's worked in the industry. Dear Lord, I want to say since 95. And it just didn't seem fair because, you know, Harry Shearer had been doing this voice since The Simpsons debuted in 1990. But in the end, you know, the folks at Gracie came back and basically said, look, this policy, this, this, this that we don't want non-white characters being voiced by Anglos, you know, to the effect of can you, would you reconsider? And this time around, he's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do it. What's interesting is he's not the first African-American uh, to come in and, and voice a, a, you know, a black character in The Simpsons. Uh, we had uh, Alex Desert. Uh, he replaced Hank Azaria as the voice of Carl Carlson, uh, Homer's co-worker at the nuclear power plant. But yeah, these are all folks starting to work, and we're going to start hearing the voice work, especially given The Simpsons just got renewed for season 33 and 34. Yeah, that is insane. Jim, this, this show is going to be is going to outlive us all. I swear to God. <laughs> well, again, if somebody was pointing out that when they complete the the, uh, the fourth season in the spring of 2023, there will be 757 episodes of The Simpsons produced. Just I can't imagine where they're pulling stories from now. They they must have a room next to the writers' room where it's literally. How about, hang on, let me go in and check to see what, you know, no, we did that story. We did that story in, in 2003, come up with something different. Speaking of, of course, Simpsons is part of Fox's animation domination programming block. On Sunday nights, it's it airs locked in with uh, Bless the Hearts, The Great North, Bob's Burgers, and Family Guy. But just this week, they announced Fox is looking to expand animation domination's footprint. They're going to be setting up a a new block of animated shows that's going to begin airing in late May on Monday nights. And I guess Duncanville, I know we've talked about that show previously on, on fine-tuning, but they're pairing that with a brand-new animated sitcom called Housebroken. But that's a ways away. And, and, and something what's really a ways away, like years from now, are the two animated features that Gore Verbinski is reportedly working on. Gore said, I'm working on two animated features that I can't really talk about. I'm working on two screenplays, and they're not Westerns. And, right. And, of course, the reason he, he said that is the last animated feature he worked on, uh, 2011 Rango, uh, was a Western. And he worked with noted uh, cinematographer Roger Deakins. Uh, in fact, I guess Verbinski went on to say that Deakins was the very first guy he called about these two animated features he's working on now. He, he said, Roger, are you in? And pitched him to in detail. So uh, Deacons is coming back and he's helping him with this and really on, on the shot production and getting Roger Deacons to work on your film, whether it's animated or if it's live action, that's a really big deal. He is one of the very best cinematographers on the planet. You can tell when he's helping produce shots for an animated film. In fact, I... 
I just remember the very first time I saw the, the first How to Train Your Dragon. And the flight scenes in that just looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. And you, But you could see Roger's hand. Andrew Stanton recruited him for, for Wally because he wanted it to look like a, a live-action sci-fi film. And I was kind of surprised to, to find out he also worked on The Croods and Rise of the Guardians. But I guess there are a couple of shots in The Croods that are just, you know, just sort of, for lack of a better term, reek of deacons. Yeah, I think there's some stuff. He, he was also very famous for helping out in How to Train Your Dragon with the candle lit sequences, where he pushed them to have sequences that were only lit by candlelight. And I think there's a couple of instances like that in the crew mm-hmm. that I'm sure he helped out on. Um, but yeah, he's amazing. No, no, he is. He is. I just now I got to go back and look at the original crews again. So Gore... In talking about these two animated projects, he said one's a musical, and but again, he stressed these are so many years out. They take so long. I mean, it's just it's just way too early to talk about them. On the other hand, one movie that it's not too early to talk about is Zootopia. In fact, Drew, you were the one in suggesting the feature we're going to do today. That yesterday, March fourth, was the fifth anniversary of when this Walt Disney Animation Studios production was released to theaters. Remember when we used to see movies in theaters, you know? I do. I remember that was the greatest junket I've ever been to, Jim. It was in Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. Uh, the park said, bring as many people as you want. So my entire family came down and met me in Florida. Yeah, that was just the best. The only bad thing, Jim, is relying on Walt Disney transportation <laughs> when you have to be back at the hotel for an interview. <sighs> It's like, Drew, you're up next. And I'm like, I'm on a bus from the Magic Kingdom. Give me a couple more minutes. Uh, you know, that whole thing. But anyway. Okay, we'll tell you what, folks. We're going to take a quick break here. But again, Drew and I will talk about that junket. And more to the point, uh, we'll take you behind the scenes on this Byron Howard, Rich Moore, and Jared Bush movie. Forgot to mention that today on Netflix, two brand new animated series debuted. City of Ghosts and Pacific Rim, The Black. I really have to check out City of Ghost Drew, created by Elizabeth Ito. Have you heard about the gimmick of this thing, that the ghosts are interviewed as part of the show are actually residents, longtime residents of L.A. that talk about what their neighborhoods used to be like? Oh, I've watched the whole thing. Have you Jim. really? Yeah. They're only, the episodes are only 17 minutes long, okay. which is a really nice mm-hmm. kind of middle ground between the 11 and 22 and it's really beautiful. The only thing I didn't like was that they didn't go to Toluca Lake Gym and all these other neighborhoods, but I know Toluca Lake, maybe in season two. But right, but, but what we, yeah. we get Little Tokyo, we get Koreatown. Do they actually go to the Bob Baker Marionette Theater? They do, and there's also a really fascinating episode about the indigenous population of I California. I saw that, yeah. It's a really amazing, wonderful show. I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't as thrilled about Pacific Rim. Well, but that sounds you know. really, really, really dark. I mean, it's just, I know we've talked on, on, on earlier shows about how, what, this is a continuation of 2013's Pacific Rim and then the sequel from 2018, Uprising. But this is not a happy story that basically, as we're getting started, the kaiju have won? Yeah, 
it's just not very good. I mean, I love the first Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. I think Guillermo did an amazing job. I thought the sequel was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is just, it's sort of a weird combination of 2D and mm-hmm. 3D. It looks sort of like a video game. Mm-hmm. The monsters aren't that good. And as I think we've talked about before, Jim, you know, the, the team behind Troll Hunters had a Pacific Rim animated show that, that Guillermo was actually going to supervise, uh, ready to go back before Troll Hunters caught on. So. I just wonder mm. what that would have been like, because this one is not mm. great. Mm. Sorry to hear yeah. that. Okay, well, at the very least, folks, go check out City of Ghosts. Uh, you know, that yeah. if you, especially if you're you're a fan of LA history like I am. On the other hand, if you're you're not a fan of of hotel room redos, today the Disney Parks blog put up photos or, or concept art of the Moana themed redos of the rooms at the Polynesian Village, which you're on record now is you do not like well this is my problem with modern disney resort activity is they say it needs to be more themed let's slap a decal on it Mm -hmm. where it was like wait a minute this was already themed to a polynesian village as the title would suggest Mm -hmm. i don't need to have a 50 foot tall maui in the lobby to make (laughs) me understand what this is supposed to be did you see the wood floors yes Disney evidently started doing wood floors when they were doing the redo of the Coronado to get ready for the new tower. We were in those rooms. We were in those rooms. That we were. That we were. But but this is the thing. They're easier to maintain than a carpeted floor. They're easier to clean. That, for me, was always the interesting part of looking at the design choices that are also powered by... It means that when somebody's looking to turn that room to get it ready to bring the new guest in, you can shave five to ten minutes off of prepping that room. You don't have to necessarily change that room out, uh, you know, update it uh, anytime soon because of, of the ease of use stuff that's in there. The wallpaper print that was basically like Maui's tattoos. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to get into the space to pass final judgment. Do you remember when they ripped the giant sort of atrium waterfall thing out of the entrance of the hotel? Yeah, I'm still going to therapy for that, Jim. <laughs> okay. In fact, I think you dropped me off at the Polynesian one time right after it was ripped out and we were both just like, uh, there it is. It's gone. That was done out ahead of building two towers in the middle of the Polynesian village that were supposed to be for DVC. The whole notion is we're going to be putting several hundred more guests into this lobby space every day. And it's like, so the giant waterfall and the rocks and the plants and the parrots, they have to go. And that's why you got this. And then the weird part of it is they built that lobby and then the project got put on hold. And I think the project actually got put on hold because the, the thinking was we can make so much more money off of the bungalows. People will pay top dollar for those. And we can do the towers later. Oh, I hate those bungalows. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, I know. No no resort has been screwed with quite as well as Polynesian. Although this, the statement today about there be more hotels getting the overlay. And we saw those test rooms with the Incredibles theme mm-hmm. for contemporary you must have seen the same piece of language that I saw. It was the Disney Resort Portfolio 
or <laughs> what is the, the the word they used that it was just sort of like oh dear lord yeah you know just because they're using that one word means they're going to charge 50 more dollars a night and it's just sort of like it's a hotel i mean it's a, i get it it's at the walt disney world resort but it's still a hotel but no no it's it's part of a portfolio now but, all right. right. Anyway, we were, we were talking about oh uh, Disney touches across our collection. There we go. There we go. The, yeah. the Disney Resort collection, and it's like, yeah. and you know, and then again, you know, the interesting thing is when you don't pay, you know, your hotel bill, they put you into collections. So go figure. Right. Right. We're a long way off from the '90s, Jim, where Michael Graves and yeah. Robert Stern were building amazing architectural marvels that had nothing to do with cartoon characters, Jim. Mm -hmm. I mean, I miss it. That is not Bob Chapek's company. No. More Disney. Anyway, so you were just mentioning, again, the amazing Zootopia press event that you and I both attended, which was held at the Animal Kingdom Lodge. Did you get to do any of the roundtables where they rolled the monitor in with, with Jennifer Goodwin, who I guess was home because she was immensely pregnant at that point? Yeah. I actually did TV interviews, Jim, so I was actually talking to a monitor ah, on camera. Okay. Which, yeah, you know, so that was fun. Okay. Um, yeah, that was very weird. It, it was, um, like, you know, it, it, but at the same time, given if you think about how now we all live on, on Zoom, interesting that Zootopia basically introduced this all to the concept of how we hold these Zoom events. Well, you, you were at that uh, fairies event like a, a year or two before, right? Where she, where it was at Toon Studio. I think it was for the Never Beast, I want to say. Uh, and I got her to admit that she was such a Disney fan. She owned a bootleg copy of Song of the South. What? So, yeah. Yeah, Jennifer's the real deal. And in fact, what was so funny that at, this, at that same time, she's still doing Once Upon a Time, playing Snow White on that. And to get recruited to voice a, you know, a character for a Disney film was her dream. And I want to point out here that, that one of the reasons that you wanted to talk about Zootopia is this is a film that changed quite a bit over its production history. In fact, uh, do, you, do you want to start off by talking about the ice cream scene? Well, I mean, it was they showed it at D23... 2015 well yeah 2015 that summer mm -hmm. and you and i were there mm -hmm. and then you and i both went a few weeks later to the long lead day and they showed us a completely different version yeah. of that ice cream scene i mean it was like completely flipped around it was different had different dialogue mm -hmm. and all of this stuff it was just really really different and it was weird they that it was so close to d23 and it was so different yeah, yeah. And animated features do as they test. They will make changes. I mean, for example, you were reminding me about, I, I actually saw the Hercules Mall Tour in the months before that film opened in the summer of 97. And they, they ran a work in progress as part of the mall tour of Zero to Hero. And there was a tail end of that song. There's the scene where Hercules is riding in the back of Pegasus. He's going through the night sky. And in the finished film, there's a what appears to be a star version of Marilyn Monroe. And her skirt gets blown. Yeah, up, yeah, yeah. And what struck me about that when I saw the finished film was like, now, wait a minute. That's not what I saw as part of the mall tour. And that was, again, the same thing. It was March or April and a movie that came out in June. 
But what they showed for that scene of Hercules and Pegasus soaring through the night sky is suddenly who's made out of stars, but it's Sebastian and Ariel from The Little Mermaid. And I want to say that as they pass by these two, Ariel's hair sort of you know gets caught in the breeze and you know Sebastian looks askance. But it's again, this was fully animated. But I guess what happened is as they tested it, the audience reaction was it took them totally out of the film. They people were like, Oh, that's Sebastian, that's that's Ariel. And it took them a minute or so to get back into the movie. And it just was one of the things where it's like, oh crap, you know, we're telling a story here and we can't lose the audience just as we're you know, in fact, I guess the problem was that within like a minute of that, we've cut to uh, Hercules's grand estate and the guy is painting him. And that's when they he's dressed wearing the fur of Scar. And it was just right. it was like two in jokes right on top of one another that took people straight out of the movie. And it's like, pick one. One of these has to go because we can't lose people for a full minute out of the movie. But anyway, to get back to Zootopia now that. We start off with Byron Howard. He's just completed Tangled, which is, you know, a really tough project he and Nathan Grano brought across the finish line. And he wants to do something different. He doesn't want to do another fairy tale film. What he wants to do is a Disney animated feature similar to Disney's Robin from Hood from 73, the, the anthropomorphized animals. Do you remember the, the story Byron told about this, that what he brought it? This idea to John Lasseter, John gave him a big hug and then attempted to lift him up like Simba from The Lion King, uh, which I would pay good money to see that image. Yeah, I mean, given Lasseter's uh, history with hugging, <laughs> maybe not the best thing to do, but, you know. Okay, okay. And I think they showed us some of this stuff as part of the press junket. Do you remember how his first take on it was he wanted to do kind of a James Bondy 1960s spy movie, Savage Seas or something like that? Where yeah, yeah, and then it sort didn't it sort of morph into almost a film noir? Yeah, type yeah. Thing? At one point, they suggested that Jared Bush, who should come on board as both a writer and eventually as a co-director, one of the reasons that they suggested that Jared come on on board is that his father and grandfather worked for the CIA. So it's the notion of, oh, Jared knows spy stuff. So, you know, this will be great. But they really got in the weeds in 2015 because the film was so, it had great design. It had, you know, amazing looking characters, but the story was all over the place. And so Rich Moore had finished Wreck-It Ralph, which again, another film that really had trouble finding its way. In October of 2012, and I guess, what is it, March 2015, a year out from release, Rich is brought in? Well, it wasn't just Rich. It was it was a lot of the people that were already working on the on Ralph Breaks the Internet, including Jim Reardon. There we go. There we go. Who we don't we don't talk about enough, yeah. but is a, a lovely, mm-hmm. you, you love Jim, right? I do, I do. I think it, it, it also a big fan of Clark, uh, Clark Spencer, who came over uh, from... Yeah. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph to, to serve as the producer. I'm going to try to wrangle Zootopia. But can you tell the story about the guy who actually set them on the right path? Oh, yeah. So this is a story that I wasn't able to tell because I was at Disney at the time. And, and Disney Animation does not like to share the spotlight. But what they told me was that they they screen 
Disney Animation will screen their movies for Pixar, and Pixar will screen their movies for Disney Animation, and they'll get feedback, and that it was actually Andrew Stanton who saw Zootopia and said, this is wrong, you may nick the main character, but he's kind of been, you know, he's sort of down and out and cynical, and you're you're making us want to care about this place, but through the eyes of someone that hates it. So you have to kind of flip that. And I think actually that ice cream scene was from the version there we go. where Nick was the main character. There we go. Yeah. So he was the one who said Judy should be our, our lead character. We should see Zootopia through uh, her eyes. And in fact, it's during this period where our 1960s spy story becomes a contemporary police story. And then then it becomes you know Judy going to the Academy and her uh, discovering this world. When you see the finished film, you you don't see any of this flailing. But on the other hand, you were at the company while this was all going on. Yeah. You get to see some some things tried out for this thing, right? Yeah, well, I saw the Sia the Sia version. The movie was always pretty much the movie. I mean, once they got the Judy and Nick relationship right, but I saw a version that had Sia singing the opening title song, which she wrote and I think produced, but that Shakira sang in the eventual movie. And I love I think the Sia version is so much better. I-, I I love the Shakira version, but the Sia one needs to see the light of day because it was really awesome. And the other thing that I forgot about when I was writing you that email, Jim, was I actually went to the scoring of this movie. Did you really? I went to Warner Brothers. Yeah, oh, no. I went to Warner Brothers and sat in the back of the Clint Eastwood scoring oh, stage you're and saw Michael Giacchino, me. who I have since become kind of friendly with, mm-hmm. um, scoring. It's the scene where the jaguar goes crazy when they're in the kind of jungle land with the kind of lattices. And it was really, really cool. And what was so cool was that there were all these animation guys that had dropped by at the same time. So David Silverman was there talking to Jim Reardon. And it was just a very cool atmosphere of all these great creators. And of course, uh, Rich and Byron there. And Rich is one of my favorite people, and I think it's a real shame that Disney let him go. Yeah. Not let him go, but let him leave the company. Yeah. And also Corey Loftus, who did all the amazing yep. character yeah. designs, yeah. I mean, is not there either. So there, there's there been a little bit of a brain drain that people don't talk about recently, but those two are huge losses, I think. Yeah. It was an amazing bench on this project, and it all paid off because that this was a billion-dollar earner for the company. And we're not done with Zootopia yet, you know, that, that I think it was, uh, the earnings call back in January where we found out about what Zootopia plus coming to, to Disney plus in 2022. Uh, likewise, we have our Zootopia themed land going to Shanghai Disneyland. And it's also a component of Epcot's play pavilion. If that ever actually opens, but we also have to talk here about, the long-range plans for Zootopia, the sequel films. Do you remember when Tiny Lester, uh, he's the one who who voiced uh, Fennec the Fox, uh, Nick Wilde's diminutive partner in crime? February of 2020, Tiny Lester talked about how he was already working on two sequels for Zootopia. And Disney came down on him like a ton of bricks. They made him pull down the video. They they made him deny that. And in fact, the, the sad part is we lost Tiny uh, in December of uh, just this past year at the age of 62, which 
that's very young, especially since I turned 62 next Friday. Have you heard anything to that effect about the Zootopia sequels? Because they, I haven't heard any movement. I mean, I, I think you and I were both holding our breath at the last D23 mm-hmm. about something that I was referring to as Tootopia. Mm-hmm. That you know, you can you can call it that if you want. Internet, <laughs> okay. You know, let's get this trending. But um, <laughs> yeah, but there 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 was a weird lack of Zootopia stuff. Yeah. So I I don't know. You're you're right. I think the Shanghai thing points to it mm. as just as much as anything else but I'm, I'm excited about these little vignettes or whatever they are coming to Disney Plus I think the world I think that we can all agree the world is very rich it is and also is. you know Lassiter said no no reptiles no fish mm-hmm. because they had good dinosaur because Pixar had good dinosaur in Finding Nemo mm-hmm. so hopefully those rules will be lessened now that he's out of the building and we can get more more areas of Zootopia we haven't seen before. Yeah, that there's a a couple of, of sections of town and that we did not get to see or experience that are ripe. Well, I I, I guess we'll just have to wait for, for somebody to leak. So but until we get that news, if you're looking for some supremely entertaining podcasts, I can I cannot highly recommend enough that you go check out Light the Fuse and Light the Wick. Drew's amazing Mission Impossible podcast and likewise your John Wick series. And where are we this week? We have an interview with Mark Stockinger, mm-hmm. who was the supervising sound editor of Mission Impossible 1 and 2. We're sort of switching off. Sometimes we have people that talk about Mission Impossible for half the time mm. and then John Wick for half the time. So we're kind of alternating. But it's a lot of fun. And then we're going to get into Top Gun Maverick this summer, Jim, obviously. Uh, so get ready for Light the Fuselage as well. <laughs> so that'll be That's a soon. great name. Oh, holy cow. Um, <laughs> I, I have to ask because yeah. I just dug out my copy of a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away, Paul Hirsch's amazing book. You, you mentioned that you had some, some episodes coming up with him soon or – Yes, uh, for May the fourth, we have our Paul Hirsch that's right, episodes. That's right. Okay, and we're we're chiseling away, Jim. I'll tell you after the show, but our Mount Rushmore is going to have one less face because we got we're landing a big fish very soon. Ooh. So I will I will tell you about that off air. But okay, get ready for that. Okay, can't wait, can't wait. We got some anniversaries this year. I will I will say that we got Mission Impossible one is turning. 25 and Mission Impossible three is turning 15. So we've got a Holy lot of anniversaries cow. coming up. Wow. Light the wick, light the fuse, and light the fuselage. I love that name. But okay, when you're not listening to to <laughs> Drew's most excellent podcast, we got some shows over here too. We got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, and I'll be doing a brand new Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams. Tell you what, if you if you could uh, do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review not only the show you're listening to right now, fine tuning, but likewise. Uh, light the fuse and light the wick you can always head over to Bandcamp and subscribe you can find us on twitter and instagram as jim hill media and on facebook at jim hill media news and come back and check us out folks okay take care